Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. So we are, as a church, in the middle of a very unique sermon series. Usually at Hope, and if you've been with us for a while, you know this, that what we do is we walk through a single book of the Bible, one verse at a time. That's our practice. That's our habit. And it's a good habit because it leaves no stone unturned. Yet, it is also, it can be a dangerous habit if we lose the big picture of the Bible. Maybe you've been to the Art Institute of Chicago and you remember what it was like to stand in front of George Sherrod's masterpiece a Sunday afternoon on the island of La Grande Jean. So this painting, if you've been there, it's hard to miss. It's taller than me and it's about 10 feet wide. And it's also hard to forget because it's the most famous example of the painting technique called pointillism. As a pointillism is when a painter uses small points with their brush to generate a big picture. And so when you stand in front of this painting right here, it's important that you do two things, like what those folks are doing. First, stand close. Get as close as possible to see the small points. And yet, at the same time, stand back. So you can see the big picture. Well, we have to do the same with the scriptures. If all we do is stand close to the scriptures, which is a good thing, but if that's all that we do, then we will know the points, but miss the picture. When I was in seminary, uh, I met a student who said, I didn't come here to learn Bible trivia. I actually know a lot of the Bible. I grew up in church. Um, I could probably ace and beat you in Bible trivia. The reason I'm here, actually, is to see how all of it fits together. And so for many of us, that's our story, too. We carry around like a box of biblical puzzle pieces, and yet... We don't know how they fit together. All the biblical puzzle pieces that we have, they're all true and they're all good, but we don't really know how they fit together. What's happened? We've lost the big picture. Well, that's why we're spending this year on the big picture of the Bible. And we're doing that by exploring the scriptures one book at a time. Grasping the big picture of the Bible, it's not just interesting, but it is, I believe, essential. Because how many of you, real talk, have been subjected to a terrible night of board gaming. Anybody? Anybody been subjected? Yes? Okay. Who's taught a terrible night of board gaming? Uh, what's happening in this moment? Well, it's probably terrible because you have no idea what the game is about. You have no idea what the big picture is about. You've got caught up in the small details, but whoever taught you the game didn't tell you how it all fits together and where things are going and what the whole point is. And when that's true, there's nothing worse. And what do you do? You check out mentally, if not just walk away. <laughs> and then you say to yourself, never again. Well, we've been doing our best to capture the big picture of the Bible so that doesn't happen. Here's how one theologian, Michael Goheen, summarizes the big picture of the Bible. 
Act 1, God establishes his kingdom. Act 2, rebellion in the kingdom. Act 3, the king chooses Israel. Interlude, a kingdom story waiting for an ending. Act 4, the coming of a king. Act 5, spreading the news of the king. With scene 1 and 2, scene 1, from Jerusalem to Rome, and scene 2, and into all of the world. And then Act 6, the return of the king. And if we map the books of the Bible onto this big picture, we have this, Genesis 1 and 2. Act 2, Genesis 3 with the rebellion. And then we have with Act 3, quite a bit of the Old Testament, if not the rest of it, actually. And as we've been going with sort of the, uh, the Hebrew Bible, how they sort of separate the Bible, we see with Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. And then we have the writings, Psalms, Song of Songs, Lamentations, Job, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Ruth, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And that's Acts 3. We have an interlude. And then we have Act 4 with the Gospels. The rest of the New Testament. And then what Revelation points to with the return of the King. And what do you notice about this? What do you notice about this big picture? Well, number one, we've covered a ton of ground, haven't we? We have covered so much ground uh, this year alone, and that is a good thing. But what else do you notice about this? We, friends, are in Act 5. We are invited into this big picture. We are invited by God into His story. We've got a part to play. But... To play our part well, we need to familiarize ourselves with what came before us and what is happening after us. What we need, friends, is the big picture. And that's what we've been doing. Well, a funny thing happens in the middle of this story. As God's telling his story, in the middle of the drama, the story almost stops. It almost stops for us. And we really don't get any new information. Right in the middle, like right in the heart of the Bible, we get almost no information. But what we do get are books of poetry and books of song. And books of wisdom. And for the last few weeks we've been looking at the wisdom books. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. We looked at Proverbs, and then Job, and then Ecclesiastes. And now that we've explored the what of these books, we've really dug into these books and explored what they are about. And if you miss that, you can, you can uh, listen to them at another time. But the point is this. We want to press pause today. And we want to ask the why question. This is a question that I'm really interested in. Why are these books in our Bible? Why are these books in the story of God? They don't really advance the story much at all. So why are they there? And why did God give us not just one wisdom book, but three? And why are they so different from each other? Couldn't God just give us code like robots? Why did he give us these strange books that demand insight and improvisation and observation and contemplation? We want to answer that this morning. But first, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth, would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer? And yes, we pray by your Holy Spirit that we would see Jesus and that he would be more beautiful 
than he is even now to our hearts. That's what we need most. We need that miracle. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so a few months ago, I took a deep dive into the world of watercolor paints. I wanted to assemble a minimalist watercolor kit for my wife's birthday. But I knew next to nothing about the craft, but there is a website for that. (laughs) Like all things. There is a website. And this is what I found, and I found some other things too, but this was the most helpful resource for me. This artist here, John Lovett, he recommended basically a few paint tubes, which was good news for me because I'm out to get like the most minimal set I could possibly get. And what I was picturing when I set off to do this was that 120 color Crayola mega box. You know what I'm talking about? That's what I was imagining you needed in order to get like all of the spectrum that you need in order to paint well. But it turns out you only need three, really three colors. Yellow, red, and blue. And from these three hues, you get access to the whole spectrum of color. And I think that's actually pretty amazing. And I want to extend this image to the wisdom books that we have in the scriptures. Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. It's not a perfect analogy. But it helps me think of these books as the three primary colors of wisdom. If we have only one of them, yes, we can paint, we can be wise, but we are limited. If we have only two of them, even so, we are limited. But if we have all three, I believe we have God's intent. We have the whole spectrum of what it means to be wise in this life. What we've been calling a relationally healthy life. Before God and others and his creation and even ourselves. God gave us all three colors. They're all on our palette. We just have to make use of them. A number of scholars talk about how these three books that seem so different, like red, yellow, and blue, they seem so different, but they create a balance within God's scriptures and for the believer. So my favorite, the late Derek Kidner of Cambridge, he puts it this way. These three books present three aspects of existence that no one can afford to overlook. The demands of practical good management, Proverbs. The enigma of calamities that are beyond control or explanation, Job. And the tantalizing hollowness and brevity of human life, Ecclesiastes. And since we have studied over the past three weeks, each of these hues, each of these colors in depth, today I want to mix paint. Amen? I want to mix paint. I want to see what happens. And I want to ask God, why have you put all of these three colors on our palette? And what would it mean for us in our lives very practically today? But to do that, I mean, some of us are here for the first time. I want to just briefly review these three books again to get them fresh into our minds. Now, here's how I want to review them. This helps me. They're, again, they're images, but this is how my brain works. So Proverbs gives us a treasure map. Job gives us a whirlwind. Ecclesiastes gives us steam. And I just want to briefly remind us what each of these books are about, starting with Proverbs. So I want to compare Proverbs to a treasure map. A treasure map tells you where treasure is, right? And they're very simple, but it's very reliable, and they're also very promising. 
Do this and you'll get this. Follow this and you will find treasure. And that's how most of Proverbs operates when you read it. So I just want to look at the introduction. Proverbs chapter 1. The first seven verses say, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, two or four, knowing wisdom and instruction. So these Proverbs are given for us to know and acquire wisdom and instruction and to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in what? In wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, in equity, to give prudence to the simple or the young. Let knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. Guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of wise and their riddles. And then famously, verse 7, the fear of the Lord, which we'll talk about in a moment, is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise this. So one commentator says about this intro. That it is a challenge. It's a challenge. We read right away in the beginning of Proverbs. We, uh, we are confronted with a challenge. And the challenge is this. Well, not that. I'll get to that. It's this. Proverbs offer, I'm, I'm quoting this scholar, offers a significant benefit of acquiring the key to attaining capability in life. By this book, they go on, one can learn the principles that determine success or failure in the major arenas of human activity, including business, personal relationships, family life, and community life. Proverbs. I have a friend who likes to collect and read mechanical manuals. Any of you out there can relate? Um, He just likes to learn how complex machines work. This friend also works... On elevators for a living. And many of you know who I'm talking about. In the same way, I could buy this manual to learn about the mechanics of my 2002 Honda Civic. I haven't. I probably won't. (laughs) But I could if I would. The mystery of my car, I could understand better how it works. This is, in a way, a treasure map. It's a treasure map to many people. They love this stuff. Because it gives them access to how things work. Well, Proverbs gives us access in a way to the mechanics of God's good creation. And this is good. And this is a gift from God. How relationships generally work. How justice generally ought to play out. Or to change the image from mechanics to woodworking. How the sort of grain of the universe goes so that you can work with it. And not get splinters. Or as one person puts it. So you don't spit into the wind of creation. (laughs) And get it back in your face. And this is a gift from God. God says I want you to know. How my good creation. Generally works. And so study my Proverbs. Become wise. Proverbs 1 says. Gain this. Obtain this. Heed this. Learn this. Devote yourself to this craft. And you will be wise. A wise person knows this. They have common sense. They have a humility before God. Fear of the God, fear of the Lord. And when you're stuck, when you're stuck in life, who are you calling? Who? 
Who are you calling? You're calling the wisest person you know, aren't you? The person who is humble before the Lord and who sort of has a good grip on how God's world works. You know, the person who understands that if you don't brush your teeth, you get cavities. That person is who you want to talk to when life gets hard. And chapter 1 of Proverbs invites us all to become that person. Now, if Proverbs gives us a treasure map, I believe Job gives us a whirlwind. Remember, this picture right here is how we uh, understood the book of Job, if you were with us. God is a creator. He's above the line. And we are a part of God's creation below the line. And there is a hard, hard line between creator and creation. Do you remember this? And therefore, there is a hard line between us and the Lord. And therefore, there's a hard line between us and sort of our knowledge of what goes on in the, in the heavenlies. But what we know about God is always because God comes down to us. The fancy word for this is condescension. God comes down to us. He speaks his word to us. Or as one reformer puts it, he speaks baby talk to us. All that we know about God is because he has revealed himself through creation. He has revealed himself through his word. He speaks to us. We see him in Jesus, which, by the way, is the arrow. Amen. And that is so important to not just understand life in this world, but to understand Job. Because the first two chapters of Job gives us access in a way to the above the line space. But notice in Job, if you remember, Job and everyone else has no access above the line. And so as we're reading Job, we sort of know something that they don't. And it's informative. It tells us all that we don't have access either. But then in chapters 3 through 37 of Job, it's what happens below the line when tragedy happens, when Job encounters profound loss, profound and inexplicable suffering. And what do his friends do? His friends come alongside and they offer what we call the way of the long wind because their answers were long winded and they're very theologically erudite. They were very, very sort of almost proverbial. And yet, God in the end says, they spoke wrongly about me, even as they were saying true things. <laughs> right? And yet, God says to Job, you spoke truth to me. You spoke truly about me. You, in all of your wrestling, messy as it was, were on the right path. See, the friends gave tidy answers. It, they acted as if they had access above the line. And that they were the arrow. Bringing it down to poor Job. They had a VIP pass. But then Job sort of is like, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I'm wrestling. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm going to wrestle with the Lord. I'm sorry. I'm going to listen. You're a miserable comforter. I'm not listening. Like, Lord, what's going on? And in the end, what happens? The Lord shows up in a whirlwind. In a storm. And we see the Lord honoring. Even as he corrects. Job's messy prayers, which takes us to the final five chapters where Job is given a front row seat of God in the whirlwind, God in the storm. And what he sees and what he kind of hears actually is enough for him. So he's still sitting in an ash heap. He's still covered in boils, but he can say this. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? 
Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak, I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. So Job sees the Lord. And therefore, it says, I despise myself in some translations. I think it's better to translate that Hebrew word. Therefore, I melt. And instead of repent, some of your footnotes, even in your Bibles, they'll have a footnote and they'll say, or am, am comforted. And because the Lord doesn't rebuke Job for any sin, I think we are to understand the Hebrew to say, I am comforted. In, in dust and ashes, which is a, a very, very, very profound thing to think about. Job is in dust and ashes. His skin is covered in boils, and yet he experiences comfort. Why? Because he sees and hears the Lord, and it is enough. It is enough. God doesn't give Job all the answers. Doesn't even really address the question. But it's enough for Job to just see him. To encounter him. And so I think Job teaches us the hard truth that comfort is usually found in the whirlwind. With God, though, it's not found in philosophical answers. And so we don't trust in answers, but we do trust and rest in the wisdom of God. And that's the wisdom of Job. And I just want to say briefly, if you're wrestling with God this morning, and you're like absolutely surprised that you're even here this morning, I just want to say keep going. I think Job would say keep going. Like Jacob before, like Jacob, keep wrestling. There's blessing on the other side, even if it gives you a limp. Job wrestles with God and finally comes down. God finally comes down and speaks. And again, it doesn't give Job the answers, but his presence satisfies. As we saw last time when we were exploring Job, we are, privileged, we are more privileged in a way than Job was in the whirlwind. Here's how John, the apostle, puts it First John. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands, and, with our, and we have touched with our hands, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. And who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And so God, in, in a way, has revealed himself in the whirlwind of the cross. And like Job, the cross mutes us. We put our hand over our mouth as we see the revelation of who God is in his heart. And like Job, the cross melts us as we see in Christ our sin and his redemption. And like Job, the cross doesn't answer our questions. But it helps us trust God's wisdom. We could say in front of the cross of Christ, if this is the heart of God for me, if he not only suffers for me, but profoundly with me, if that is the heart of God, I got a lot of questions, but I can be comforted. And that's the wisdom of Job. If you were with us last week, you know what I mean when I say Ecclesiastes gives us steam. The author of Ecclesiastes tells us that a wise person 
can say that everything is hebel, a Hebrew word for smoke, vapor, breath, or steam. And so the very first verse of Ecclesiastes, the words of the preacher are called the son of David, king of Jerusalem, Hebel of Hebelim, Hebel of Hebel, smoke of smoke, vapor of vapor, breath of breath, steam of steam. That is what a wise person can say, according to the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. This doesn't mean that life is meaningless. It means that God's creation is good. God said, this is good and even very good. But it is impossible for us below the line to control. It's like vapor. It's like steam. We can't control it. We can't eat it and be satisfied. We can't consume it or we can't expect it to deliver on all of our needs and desires. The good things of God's creation are impossible even to keep. We try to keep it. It's like corralling steam. But Ecclesiastes also tells us in the midst of this, there is real joy. If you were with us, you saw that. The key to this joy is fear of the Lord. And we're going to say just a few things about that phrase. It can offer a lot of confusion because when we hear that phrase, we're thinking, okay, when I hear the word fear, I think cowering fear. And what this phrase really meant in uh, its context is what you get when you stand before like Job and you experience the presence of God. God is God. We are not. He is above the line. We are below the line. And if he comes down, that is an awesome thing. So what it does is it produces the fear of the Lord where we say God is God and he is and we are not. And yet at the same time, whenever this word is used, fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, it is always in connection with God's covenant faithfulness and his covenant forgiveness. Even Lord, you are one who forgives. Therefore, I have fear. I have the fear of the Lord. So we cannot say that's a cowering fear. What can we say then? the fear of the Lord biblically is worship? It's basically understanding that God is God and he is good. And when those two things combine, our hearts melt like Job. Worship. And we see Jesus as God in flesh. And we see all that he's done for us. And we worship. That is fear of the Lord. So in other words, Ecclesiastes gives us wisdom. It says when God is our joy... His creation, though like steam, solidifies into a real joy. When God is our ultimate joy, his good things become avenues of real joy. So that we read this over and over and over again. We saw he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of their toil. This is the gift of God. So God gives us real joy. If you're ever baked biscuits, which I have a biscuit recipe I found online and it's great. It's easy to so just hit me up and I'll tell you what it is. Here's the number one rule. It's really good biscuits in the morning. Don't overhandle the flour mixture. Some of you know this. 
The ones I like to make require chunks of frozen butter. So you put the butter stick. This is this is what you do. You put the butter stick. Here's the secret. You ready? Put the butter stick in the freezer. Let it freeze. Pull it out. Get the cheese grater out and grate the butter. And then add that to the flour. And here's the trick. Do not overhandle that flour. Because if you overhandle that flour, that frozen butter will start to melt. And what do you want to happen? You want when those biscuits to cook, like right when you take them out, you want that butter to just be melting. So that you eat into this, you're, you're going to get like these pockets of butter. Who's hungry? <laughs> but that is all like sort of destroyed. All of that is gone if you overhandle the devil. This is what Ecclesiastes tells us. God's very good creation, if you overhandle it, if you ask too much of it, it, it dissolves in front of you. It's been said that God's, good, God's creation makes good gifts, terrible gods. He gives good gifts, but when we ask of them what only God can provide, they make for terrible gods. That's idolatry. When we ask too much of creation, it melts, disappoints, and we lose God in the process. But when God is our joy... As C.S. Lewis puts it, when we aim for heaven, we get him and earth thrown in. But if we aim for earth, we lose both. And so this means the way of Ecclesiastes is a way of realistic joy. We courageously name this theme, and yet we can also, by his grace, enjoy the feast. So, we have the primary colors of wisdom. Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. What is this going to mean for us? All three of these colors are on our palette. What does this mean for you? Well, I have three questions I want you to consider this morning. And the first is this. Are you mixing paint? These books are meant to be mixed. God didn't just inspire each individual book, but he curated the whole library. I learned recently that the Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman III calls this canonical balance. So the books of the Bible are often called the canon or the rule or the measure of faith. And so the canon within it are 66 books. And with, with those 66 books, we have balance. And I think that's really helpful. And so I'll ask you, are you balanced in wisdom? Which book, as I just outlined, do you naturally get? Do you know what I mean? Like, which book do you get? Like, which is your sort of comfy couch that you sit in when you read these books and encounter them? Which book do you, do you therefore need to spend more time in? If you are someone who just gets the Proverbs, you might need to sit a while in the fog of Ecclesiastes. You might be in danger of giving your friend in crisis miserable comfort like the friends of Job. And you need to sit a while in the fog of Ecclesiastes so that you can, or the misery of Job, so that you can maybe do as Job's friends did at the very beginning and just sit with your friend. Or, or bite your tongue when you're, when you're tempted to sort of comfort yourself With cliche, instead of actually listening to your friend who's struggling. As Fleming Rutledge puts it, 
Don't you dare put words in a sufferer's mouth. Giving them answers for it. I think that's only wisdom sought and, and received from Job and Ecclesiastes. And so if you get Proverbs, sit for a while in the other books. And on the other hand, if Ecclesiastes, for instance, is your jam, anybody? Like if this is your jam, yes. I know you're out there. I'm like, I'm one of you. Uh, you might need to hear and sit in the sort of concrete wisdom of Proverbs. Like we could just flip and point to a proverb and we could be really helped by that. Yeah, if you sleep in, you might lose your job. Like that is really good wisdom that some of us need to hear from Proverbs. Are you balanced? Second question I want to ask this morning is this. Who are your heroes? Who are your heroes? Put another way, who are you imitating right now in your life? And are they wise? Are they wise? We just learned what wisdom is. We learned what wisdom looks like from Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living, it's been said. Is your hero wise? Is your mentor wise? Are they balanced? As we just described. Here's a, this is why this is a great question. Because we were created to be wise. We're not robots who just obey directives. We're also not animals who just obey urges. We are made in the image of God. And we are being shaped into the image of Jesus. Who is wisdom made flesh. And so this is why I think we should rehabilitate the ancient and biblical concept of imitatio Christi, or imitation of Christ. This means we look at Jesus and we don't imitate Jesus to be saved or to find our safety. We don't imitate Jesus so that we hear God's I love you. We imitate Jesus because we have God's I love you and it will never be taken we imitate Jesus because we want to. We want to. We long to. And this is exactly what discipleship meant in the ancient world. And it's why I agree with John Mark Comer, who says that the life of a Christian is really apprenticeship with Jesus. So who are your heroes? I like this quote from Rich Villadas. He writes, the troubling reality is that believers can be deeply committed to being Christian without being deeply formed by Christ. Yikes. I think he's right. And part of what that means to be formed by Christ is growing in his wisdom. That's the truly wise one. So Luke tells us in his Gospels, chapter 2, verse 40, And the child, Jesus, grew and became strong, filled with what? Wisdom. In verse 52, And Jesus increased in what? Wisdom. And in stature and in favor with God and man. Paul's pastoral goal, the apostle, his pastoral goal, that he, he says, he shares this with the Colossian church. He says, and I'm quoting chapter 2, verse 2. My goal, like he's just saying, here's my end game as a pastor. Is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, 
who, in whom are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so here's the good news. If we are united, if, if, we're, if we have empty hands of faith and we know that, that, that Jesus is, is, it's like it's Jesus or nothing. If, if that's you, Jesus or nothing, and you've laid hold of Jesus with desperate empty hands of faith. The Bible says you're united to Jesus, which means that you, who Jesus is, you are united to. The same spirit that unites you to Jesus is also at work in you to become wise. That is really good news for you to cling to right now this morning. God is, in other words, more committed to your growth and wisdom than you even are because you have the Holy Spirit. Amen? That is good news. What it also means is that we imitate the wisdom of Jesus in order to grow into what is already ours. Someone put it this way in a book I read recently. Like It's like putting on, uh, if you're like a little toddler just beginning to walk, it's like sort of stepping into your dad's trousers. They're just like really like, they just, it's like, or their shoes. Like sometimes I have Crocs, that's a confession, I'm sorry. But I have Crocs, and it's like if my littlest put his feet into the Crocs, and if I told my littlest, hey, one day those are going to be yours when you get... Uh, when, when you grow into those, okay? Similar to that, you can understand wisdom to be like an oversized pair of Crocs, okay? So what you're doing is you're essentially united to the truly wise one. And by the spirit that unites you to Jesus, he is committed to growing you into the shoes that are already yours, okay? That is good news. And that means as we imitate Jesus, as we see his wisdom on the pages of scripture, we can know that we are in concert with God the Holy Spirit. That is good news. So who are you imitating? Are you imitating Jesus? Also, choose your human heroes too. You're you're merely human. Jesus was fully human and fully God. But then we have sort of community life. And Paul says, the apostle says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Which is a bold thing to say, but I love the caveat, as I imitate Christ. And what it does, I love this command for a few reasons, because number one, it's sort of an admission that we're going to imitate people no matter what. That's just part of how it works. That's how God made us. God made us to be imitators. You know, if I am listening to enough podcasts where there's like British people talking about soccer, then I'll come home and I'll start saying things. You know, don't make sense to my family. Like, are we having chips for dinner? You know what I mean? French fries, that's what they're called. No. Point is, we're, we, we are imitative. That's just how God made us. We're imitative. We imitate. And so the question isn't, are you going to imitate someone? The question is, who are you imitating? And have you thought about it? And are they wise? If you're going to imitate, be intentional about it. And so who comes to mind? Like who in your life right now comes to mind? As we're depicting sort of this well-balanced, wise person, there's got to be somebody in your life where you're like, I, yeah, they're not Jesus. Jesus is the truly wise one, but they're wise in a lot of ways. And so who is that? And then what is one thing you could do to maybe intentionally either pursue them and, and literally just say, can we get coffee? I see that you're wise in some areas that I need to grow. And I would love to just meet with you, if you're able, maybe once a month. Or maybe more frequently. 
Who are you reading? Who are you listening to? Are they wise? Like what's forming you? What's shaping you? Are they wise? Do they have balance? And the last question I want to ask before we close is this. What is your posture right now? I don't mean literally because a lot of you are hunched over. I'm not, like, what is your posture? What is your posture as a, as a Christ follower today in this cultural moment? Part of, the reason, part of the reason I'm camping out in all three of these books is because I'm convinced that the three of them together are the ingredients to a unique posture in this cultural moment. I believe our cultural moment needs wise Christians, not warrior Christians. Moses tells Israel in Deuteronomy 9, 6, I'm sorry, 4, 6, I'm quoting, Observe God's word carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations. Who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. If you want to like underline a, a, a section in your Old Testament and go back to it time and time again, Deuteronomy 4, 6 is a good place to do that. Because Deuteronomy 4, 6 gives us a sort of like missional heart of God. God is calling his, peop- his people to himself in order to bless the nations. We don't sort of sit on the blessings of knowing God and having his wisdom so that we ourselves are just like awesome in the mirror. The reason that God calls us and makes us wise is so that other people will come and worship the true God. So the question is this, is our posture one of wisdom today as a church? I mean, what if God put the wisdom book smack in the middle of the story that he is writing because he thinks it's essential for his mission? Wisdom. God isn't just, in other words, calling saved people to take part in his mission. God is calling wise people to take part in his mission, too. Here's a question. What words would your neighbors use to describe you as? Be honest. Like, I'm talking like right next door neighbors. The person who shares your dorm next to you, or the person who shares the wall next to you in your apartment. Or your parents, if you're living at home. What would your kids say to you if you have children? What word would they use? And is that word wise? Would wise ever come up? Would wisdom, as it's been described, ever leave their lips? I love this from Zach S. One. The wise are actually interested in what people think. They listen. They collect the sights and sounds of the reality around them. Then they study, meditate, and arrange what they've collected. The sage, the wise one, requires a meditative life. By this, I do not mean a monastic life. Alert observation moves sage meditation into the streets and shops of the world, not away from them. He defines wisdom, S.Y., from James as being quick to listen, slow to speak, and vent anger. Let me ask you, in this cultural moment, 
are Christians, known as quick to listen and slow to vent anger. I think what we need right now is wisdom. Peace Cazero, he says, everyone who draws breath takes the lead, takes the lead. Many times a day, we lead with actions that range from a smile to a frown, with words that range from a blessing to a curse, with decisions that range from faithful to fearful. And let me just ask you this. What if we as a church, what if you as an individual led with wisdom? What would that look like for you? So Dennis Hack, no relation, I promise. I emailed him once and I was like, Hey, we share the last name and we, you know, somewhere down the family tree, we're probably related, but he makes this comparison between wisdom and expertise. And I like this a lot. And this is how we'll close. So I'm quoting him. The wise person answers your question by saying something that invites quiet reflection. The expert answers by outlining knowledge that solves a problem. The expert's preferred tool for communication is PowerPoint. Those who are wise tend to tell a story or tend to tell a proverb and send you away with the suggestion that you learn to live in those stories. Wisdom is always relationally centered so that being with one who is wise and spending time with one who is wise is essential to becoming wise. Knowledge and expertise, in a way, can be emailed, he goes on. I'm still quoting, Wisdom insists that things are convoluted, interrelated, and very richly textured. That reality is messy, and that answers always lead to more questions. Expertise insists that when things are reduced to their basic essentials, the solutions and proposals will be precise, straightforward, and easy to comprehend. Wisdom suggests that life is best lived in the company of the faithful. Expertise argues that enough studies will present a solution. Now, expertise is important. Very important. And here's why I'm leaning towards wisdom right now. It's because it's my discernment that we are an expert church. There are so many experts and experts to be in the chairs right now. And so what if God is calling us, a church of experts, to become not an expert church, but a sage church, a wise church? Now, I'm a nerd. I love reading things. I don't read mechanical manuals. I'm sorry, but I do love reading things like this. Like, I love reading about music theory just to learn about music theory for the fun of it. I think that's fun. Um, I think that's fun. But what a shame if I never played music. See what I'm saying? My wife, she's an expert in color theory. But what a shame if she never painted anything beautiful. Same with theology. Hope is going to have a strong emphasis always on solid theology. But what a shame if we are not known as a wise church. Well, Jesus is our hero. He will see to it. Let's ask him now for that. Lord, you say if anyone lacks wisdom to cry out and to ask. And that's what we're doing now. 
We will ask, Lord, that you would transform us by your spirit into a wise church. So that we would look like you and extend your welcome to others. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.